the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. This is The Opus. It's an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy, not just of their history, but how the music continues to evolve, how it keeps shaping lives, shaking rafters, and embedding itself into our culture. I'm your host, Jill Hopkins. I'm a radio host, a musician, and a DJ and podcast host from Chicago, Illinois. Now, maybe you're a longtime fan that wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener looking to dive in. Either way, you're in the right place. Find us at Consequence of Sound or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. There are some vinyl albums that... Without their existence, I wonder if used record stores would even exist. There's some albums that seem to only exist in the resale market. There's albums that if you don't see them in the shops, you kind of notice their absence. Huey Lewis in the News is sports. Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Michael Jackson's Thriller. They sold so many copies on their initial releases that they were bound to end up flooding the shops once audio formats started to change over in the late 80s. And even though you notice them as you flip through on a visit, you rarely stop because you've seen Huey's giant face in that sports bar a million times. You've stopped openly giggling at the tassels between Mick Fleetwood's legs just a couple years ago, and you're not going to start again. And unless that tiger cub knows what happened to Carol Baskin's first husband, you just got to keep it moving. Sorry, Mike. But no matter how many times you see it in the bins at full size, you always stop, even just for a moment, on Santana's Abraxas. The colors, the shapes, the naked goddess, they're all as detailed and vibrant and layered as the music inside. 
Iconic is as overused a word as any overused word in music journalism. But what else do you use here about this image? What else do you use when some of the most eye-catching album art meets sounds that will influence music makers for generations? What other word will do? In this episode, we'll look at what influenced and who's been influenced by members of Santana and some other folks who've played with, before, and because of Santana. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. Annunciation. It's an announcement. In the Bible, the Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary that she's about to have God's baby. And we've all grown up with that story, whether we grew up with the Bible or not. I mean, it's Christmas time, for Christ's sakes. Literally, for Christ's sakes. Without the Annunciation, we're all living in a far less nativity scene-packed world. To Maddie Clarwine, the Annunciation is an interpretation of that wild story. Maddie Clarwine is the man who painted the Annunciation, which is the name of the painting on the cover of Abraxas. In his book, Collected Works, 1959-1975, the German-born French painter explains his point of view here. There's a winged and tattooed Gabriel... Wait a second. Let's take a just take a moment and let me give you a chance to pull up this image in your brain. It's a podcast. So, I can't uh, share my screen. I can't pull up a slide, but this is one of the most burned in the brain images from 1970s rock and roll album art. It's up there with Houses of the Holy and just about anything the Rolling Stones ever did. So, where was I? Oh, yes. Gabriel. A winged and tattooed Gabriel is depicted astride a conga drum. Natch. They're pointing heavenwards to a Hebrew Aleph symbol that signifies the beginning. Now, there's a dark-skinned and very naked Virgin Mary. She's surrounded by images of fertility. There's flowers, there's birds, there's tinctures, there's photographs. Drums were always used to announce something, Mati said. They were a medium of communication to Africa. And to the left, well, there's the Wodabi charm dancers. And in front of them is a very gib-looking guy. And that's Mati himself. There's a lot going on. And even as I describe it, I know you're picturing it. As best you can, anyway, for something with so many details. And Carlos Santana remembers the first time this imagery found him. So when Society Magazine, I was at Michael Carabello's house. Him and I, we go back, back and forth. We feed off of each other, off each other art. I went to his house, 
And I remember distinctively that Greg Enrico, the drummer with Sly Stone, was there. You know, we're all hanging around, just getting high, listening to music. We're listening to a Body Miles album about down by the river and changes, you know. Uh, uh, anyway, so I'm watching this magazine, and I and we, Michael and I, both of us looked at each other like, this is the next album cover. The, the, the music was just starting to come into view, but we saw the album cover. And a lot of people were like, well, what's, why is the cover like that? I says, because the angel with the conga is Gabriel, and she's Mary, this beautiful black naked lady. That's Mary, and he's coming to let her know, hey, guess what? You're going to carry the one, the Christ conscious, Christ collective consciousness, you know? So if you really stand back and look at it, it's a painting of the Annunciation. When Gabriel announced to Mary, you're with the, you are with the creator of the universe being born through you. Where are you supposed to rest your eyes here? There's the overarching story of the Virgin Mary, yes. And it's depicted in this work as, quite frankly, a goddamn brick house. But she's joined by this amazing collection of symbols, African imagery, and psychedelic freakouts. Gabriel looks like a, a sexy forest fairy while straddling that conga and pointing heavenwards. I went to Catholic school. Finding out that this was the Archangel Gabriel instead of the uh, brown-haired, blue-eyed, trumpet-wielding wunderkind that came screaming out of the walls of my Polish Gothic adolescent church, this was a revelation to me. Straddling a conga to announce their presence. And those wise men, the Wodabi, people, a people from Niger. Every year, they hold a seven-day ritual celebration where the men participate in a series of dances and face decoration, judged solely by the women, where the object is to charm and attract Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. If you ever get the chance to talk to Carlos Santana about Miles Davis, strap in. You're going on a ride. Bitches Brew was recorded in August of 1969 and released just a few months before the sessions for Abraxas started. So it had plenty of time to make an impression on a band whose members were already huge fans of this jazz revolutionary. Impress some chicks? That's not a metaphor for being in a rock band. I don't know what is. So yeah, lots going on here. The next time you find yourself in front of a computer or in a record store or filtering through your own stacks, go ahead. Try to figure out what's most important here. You can't do it. And as it turns out, Mati's work was a favorite of a favorite of Carlos's. So we got a hold of uh, CBS Columbia at that time, 
And they were surprised because Miles Davis had selected the same artist who Bitches Brew. Mm -hmm. So they were like, oh, we're onto something, you know. Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. If you ever get the chance to talk to Carlos Santana about Miles Davis, strap in. You're going on a ride. Bitches Brew was recorded in August of 1969 and released just a few months before the sessions for Abraxas started. So it had plenty of time to make an impression on a band whose members were already huge fans of this jazz revolutionary. My friend Michael Shreve brought this many records at that time of Miles Davis and Coltrane. And he says, you need to listen to this because this is who you are. I'm like, what? I said, but this is jazz and I'm a blues guy. I'm a, I'm a, no, 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 man, this is life. And this, this is, so then I started listening to it. And then we played with Miles at Tanglewood the first time. And once I saw him, it was like, uh, it was like seeing Mount Everest, you know? And I never seen anyone, even to this day, with all respect to all the other incredible musicians, no one was, is, and will ever be as cool as Miles Davis. Miles Davis is so cool, he take no crap from nobody, black or white. You know, I mean, so, and, 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 and just the way he kisses one note, as soon as he kisses one note and you hear it, now you are connected with eternity. He took you outside of your existence into his eternity. Sketches of pain, you know? And you're like, oh my, and you don't breathe. It's like you got a colic. You don't breathe out till you finish with that note and you go, ah. Oh. And it seemed as though Carlos and Miles were two members of a mutual admiration society. Miles Davis called me many, many times. He didn't call many people, but he called me. Twice he did this to me. One in Abbey Fisher Hall in New York, and another one in a boat that uh, Cicely Tyson hired with a lot of uh, Hollywood personalities and people with stars and everything to celebrate Miles' 60 years anniversary. And Miles showed up like two hours late, late, of course. And But when he did show up, he went straight to me in the middle of the floor. He put his nose right next to my nose. His eyes are right here. And then he put his hands like this in the back of my neck. And then he lift up his legs like this. So he, I'm actually holding him. And he's like this. And then he says, it means so much that you're here. And I was like, man, you know, it's like I'm having an out-of-body experience. Because this is the second time he did this to me. You know, and I don't know how many musicians he ever did that to. But I knew he trusted me. And he knew that I love him. And I would do anything for him. And he knew that. You know, so when he did that, he wasn't afraid in front of everybody just to, to, to say that to, to like that, you know, it means so much. I just want to say that that sounds 
like an absolutely amazing party that I hope to be invited to the 2021 version of. But it also sounds like a low-key, very awkward moment for everyone else at Cicely Tyson's boat party for Miles Davis. But it does speak to the level of friendship and respect that these two innovators had for each other. Miles even checked in with Carlos as he and the band were in the studio making a Braxis. Again, it was Michael Carabella and, and um, recording this song and then in between takes and you know getting ready to record this other song. And the phone rings and he goes, Carlos, I said, yeah, he says, uh, it's for you. I says, oh, well, who is it? You know, he goes, it's Miles Davis. I go, man, don't, don't do that. You know, don't, don't play that. You know, he says, I'm not playing. Here. So I pick it up. Hello. I say, hi, Miles. What are you doing? I says, we're recording the next album. Oh, you know, and. To this day, when I hear his voice and anything, I just, I just dissolve, like salt on the ocean. You know, I just dissolve because, because I love him so much, uh, because I know that when he left the body, God said, "Hey, Gabriel, call Gabriel. Gabriel, come over here, man. Give me that trumpet." took the mouthpiece, gave back to Gabriel, and, it, it, you know, gave Miles a trumpet. I asked Carlos about that relationship's status in the years since Miles passed away in 1991. I, I love that your relationship with him had, like, an, an evolution, and it doesn't seem to have stopped evolving since he left uh, this plane. He still visits me. Strangely enough, on my birthday, you know, I had a dream on my birthday that a friend of mine says, Miles wants to see you in, the, in his dressing room. Okay, so I go over there and knock on the door. Oh, is it? I says, Carlos, come on in. So I come in and he's writing, he's writing this thing. How you been? What you been doing? You know, I says, where well, I'm learning and having fun. He goes, and he says, you're always going to be doing that because that's the kind of mind that you have, learning and having fun. And then, and then he, he finished writing the note, put it inside this book, closed it, gave it to me, and I wake up. <laughs> I'm like, oh, damn, I didn't get to see what he wrote in there. I'll pay any amount of money to have tickets to that dream theater where legends live. And where inspiration is the mysterious note inside a subconscious thought. Abraxas was released 50 years ago. Santana's baby boomer contemporaries ate this album up with a spoon when it came out. And copies of it filtered through to homes across this great land. Part of why there's so many copies of it in used record stores is because a lot of us inherited our parents' vinyl 
then decided that I guess cassettes were the thing when we were kids. And then decided that CDs were a thing when we were teenagers. And then decided that MP3s were the thing when we were young adults. And now we're circling back to vinyl. So Generation X and Millennials, we grew up listening to our parents' copies. I got to talk to AJ Davila. He was on the phone from Puerto Rico. He's a hip-hop producer, and he's the band leader for Puerto Rican garage punk band Davila 666. I'm a fan. And AJ's mom and my mom had at least one thing in common. Like, my, my mother was always, like, a fan of Santana. And, and, she, and she told me, you know, like, yo, you... You had to listen to this. The first song that I that, that, that I listened to Santana was like "Oye Como Va," mm -hmm. you know, and th that was like like a classic because like the, they did the reissue on the '90s, you know. So around that era, like uh, I, I I got the opportunity, and my mother was telling me, so I went I, I went digging, you know, like I went digging to records and all that thing, and it's like, yo, I, I, I found a brasas, you know what I mean? I was like. Yo, this is this is truly amazing because it's it's a it's a record that that combines a lot of germs in, in music. You know what I mean? Yeah. You had the psycho, you had the psychedelic side, you know the acid, acid rock side. You know what I mean? And then you have like you know you have all these like Afro Caribbean. There's a lot of things that are, that I can hear that's influenced by Puerto Rico and Cuba. You know what I mean? And it's crazy because, you know, Santana, he's from San Francisco, right? And, and, and you know, like, he's Mexican, but he didn't choose, like, on the Latin side to put, you know, on, on that, like, something, maybe mariachis or corridos. He chose, like, to do all these Afro-Caribbean uh, rhythms. Carlos Arevalo plays guitar, keys, and synth for a band named Chicano Batman. It is a great band name. Yes, I don't think it's inappropriate to stop here and acknowledge that Chicano Batman is an amazing band name. Something else that they're amazing at is fusing genres together. Bossa Nova, indie rock, rock and roll, punk, shoegaze. You know, like an early Santana did with the genres available at that time. His connection to Carlos Santana goes deeper than most people I've talked to. Okay, yes. So my middle name is Santana and it's my mother's maiden name. And so my mom didn't want to lose that name in the family. So she gave my, my sister and I both have the middle name Santana. And it's not Santana like how traditional um, Spanish surnames will add like the, the maiden name after the father's uh, last name. So it's not Carlos Arevalo Santana. It's Carlos Santana is my middle name. And then Arevalo is my, my last name. And so uh, I re my earliest memory of this was my grandmother hanging out at our house. She would come visit from Montebello in uh, Los Angeles. And she would come visit on the weekends. And I remember in the early 90s, she would get the LP, put it on the record player, get her her 
six pack of light, go sit in the backyard and like sunbathe with her, with her, she used to wear a, um, like a bandana over her hair. And, um, she would just look at me proudly and just be like Santana, like, you know, like kind of implying, Hey, we might be related, you know, some way, like he's a cousin down the line possibly. And, uh, I just remember hearing the sounds and just being, just loving it. And also just, just, it was just, so it was just ingrained in, in, in my household because my grandmother would play that record. Those are my earliest memories of that, of that. I remember liking it and thinking it was awesome. This guitar God playing these very melodic, lyrical, vocal-like melodies. It was very different from a lot of guitar music that I had heard traditionally. My ears being very limited as a kid, you know, you hear guitar solos or distortion and we're talking early nineties. So we're talking grunge or something, you know? Um, so yeah, that was my, my first memory. Just, I just remember my grandma basking in the sun, drinking her beer and putting on the LP and, and just being amazing. Arevalo went his whole life and his whole career with the knowledge in his pocket that he, at the very least is play cousins with Carlos Santana. Play cousins, look into it. And just as the elder Carlos sees the playing of Miles Davis as the mountaintop, the younger Carlos holds Santana in the same regard. As a as a Latino guitar player, I mean Carlos Santana's there. He's like the he's the Mount Everest of guitar players, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so that's kind of a double edged sword. You want to indulge in that inspiration, but at the same time, you don't want to be lumped with him because my name's Carlos, you know, and <laughs> I play guitar and his Carlos, he plays guitar. Like, oh, I could tell you're Santana, you know, uh, fiend. Uh, so for me, it was always about trying to just walk that fine line of having his inspiration, but trying not to sound like him because only he can like him and anybody else that tries to is just a imitation of that. And it's just, it's such, it's such greatness. There's no point to, to try to, you know, but I'm definitely inspired by it. And I, I was thinking about it preparing for this for this for this talk. I was trying to think how has his music uh, how has it inspired me like directly? And I listened to little guitar things that I do and after listening to Abraxas, I realized, oh I, I I got that from Santana. I clearly got that from Santana, even though I didn't consciously aim out to do this move because Santana does it. It was just something that was inherent after hearing his music growing up. And then he got technical with it for a bit. He does this little thing on guitar. It might get a little, um, basically he does, they're called double stops. And it's where he takes, he bends a string and that bend, that string is, uh, the pitch is hit at the same time as an other pitch on the guitar. And it creates like this doubling effect of like two notes at once. And he does it on his bands. And a, a big example would be on Samba Pati on Abraxas. Some of the most emotional bands on that song is him doing these double stops. Anyways, I do that a lot in Chicano Batman music. You listen to a song called Freedom is Free or on our latest record, Polymetronomic Harmony. I do these guitar kind of solo-y melodies that are doing double stops. And that's straight up Santana. A.J. Davila digs the musical mind of Santana, the mind that sees the big picture. And you can see it in everything, like, you know, like, this album, like, like, 
I, I think like he's like a, he had the producer mentality because like he didn't wrote a lot of songs of, uh, on this album, you know. Mm-hmm. He he led a lot of people like to 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 write even like Greg Rowley like did one of the singles like he, he did like the like the hope you are feeling better, you know like. Yeah. He, he's a he's a guy that he has like a he's so amazing that he let people like do but he he directs things he produces you know mm-hmm. yeah. and, and 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 that's something that's that's truly special I think like he doesn't have like a big ego you know what I mean he shows and 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 you can see it on this album that that he knows when to play his guitar you know. He's not all over the place, like playing the guitar and everything. Like, man, I think like Santana is like an amazing, cool cat. You know what I mean? I think everybody in Santana was a pretty cool cat. You look at those videos and you're like, those guys were cool. But by 2002, Santana was a whole different group of guys. And of course they were. It's a lot of years in between. The fame that Abraxas brought to that group of guys was simply not something they were ready for. It was the early 70s, so I think we know how a lot of that story goes for a lot of bands. The template had already been made. Drugs and booze for some. A combination of both with some prison sprinkles for others. And y'all, some of those guys went so far as to start Journey. So by 2002, the band had cycled through a list of extraordinary musicians and uh, extraordinary life circumstances But they had an extraordinary smash that no one saw coming in 1999 with Supernatural. And holy crap, did that album sell a buttload of copies. I won't get into it. Just know that we tried to get Rob Thomas. (laughs) But in 2002, the follow-up album to Supernatural was poised to do quite well for Santana. It was called Shaman. Shaman had some some singles. Shaman had some bops. But the biggest of all was a song called The Game of Love. And vocals on that were handled by uh, a young upstart of a vocalist. Her mom was also a huge Santana fan. And she got a phone call of a lifetime when she learned that she'd be singing on Shaman. That, by the way, was Santana's 19th studio album, as opposed to Braxis's three-spot. The Game of Love was written by Greg Alexander, who was in that band, The New Radicals. You know, they've got the music in them. And Rick Knowles, who'd written hits from Celine Dion and Madonna before this. So this song was one of those that gets shopped around. I mean, the the performers, the artists, the band is already set, but a guest vocalist needed to be found. And Santana had called in some real heavy hitters. 
Macy Gray came in and put her 2002 stamp on it. Tina Turner came in and did it. The version with Tina Turner would eventually get released down the line. But Michelle Branch went into her audition knowing those things, knowing that she had to come in and sing a song after Tina Turner. So, as any of us would have done, she did it, she left, she tried not to think about it anymore. How could she? Tina Turner just left. I literally thought there was no chance in the world I was going to get it. And then I was in the middle of, you know, touring my own album and on the road. And one day I just got a call and it was from my management and they were like jumping up and down saying, oh my God, they chose your version and you need to be in Chicago to shoot the video for it. And I was like, what? Shout out to the Chicago neighborhood of Pilsen giving all of the Chicago hospitality. So my first time meeting Carlos was at the video shoot in Chicago. And everyone in the neighborhood had found out what music video was being shot. And so people were coming out of their houses and like filling up the streets and like bringing us like bathtub tequila and stuff. Yes, come to Chicago. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, Uh, you know we obviously had like the hired people to be in the video but beyond what you saw on set there was like a party in the street like everyone was out watching and the whole thing was so surreal and yeah that was it was like okay just jump into the deep end (laughs) here we go we're filming a video and I think you know I didn't know what to expect with singing a song on someone else's record Um, I looking back on that time what was so kind of incredible and surreal was I was brought along on the promo trip for that album Mm -hmm. and it wasn't only in America we were touring in Europe and you know going to Italy and Germany and um gosh we went like all over the place and you know here I was promoting my record like staying in like you know holiday inns in rural America Um, and then we like go to Europe and we're staying in like these fancy old hotels and like the presidential suites and and I'm there just to like sing one song and watch like his whole camp play and um and he he had a huge band at the time and we all became really close and it was a it was a really cool experience and and very, very surreal. There is one person in the whole wide world who checks off more boxes than maybe anybody else in the Santana universe. Like, let me put it this way. If there's a Venn diagram in the Santana cinematic universe, where one circle is super amazing percussionists, another circle is Santana band members, a third circle is Muse, and a fourth circle 
is knows what drawer Carlos Santana keeps his socks and underwear. There'd be a center with one word in it. Cindy. Cindy's with me, and it's just pure delicious heaven, you know, being with Cindy, because both of us, we both pray for one another, mm -hmm. and we are each other's happily ever after. Oh my gosh. One of the unexpected pleasures of hosting this podcast is uh, spending a couple of hours individually with the Santanas. Those were lovely conversations. People who were very mindful of their words, mindful of the art that they make, who found each other through the kind of circumstances that are the best case scenario of the music industry. Cindy Blackman was already a badass before Carlos Santana got to her. The first time I became aware of her, and I think uh, this is fair to say it's it's the first time a lot of us did, at least those of us who are my age, was uh, the first time we saw Lenny Kravitz's Are You Gonna Go My Way video. I had just picked up the drums myself in 1993. I was in high school. I hadn't yet joined, I had not yet joined my first band, but I had started playing percussion for my high school orchestra. But I'll tell you, I'd seen a few things in my 14 years on planet Earth, but a black lady drummer who kind of looked like a very cool version of me? No, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that. But when Cindy Blackman came onto the scene, I absolutely did. Let's go a few years down the line. I'm at a Santana show in Tinley Park, Illinois at Whatever that amphitheater was called in 2010. You know how they like to change names. And Carlos Santana asked his drummer to marry him. That was Cindy. She's Santana's drummer. She's Carlos's wife. And the first time she joined the band was for a one-off gig, sitting in for Dennis Chambers, who was full-time at the time. And she soon joined them as their main beat keeper. All of this being said, this working relationship that turned into a life partnership. Cindy Blackman didn't grow up with Santana's music on heavy rotation. I had, I think, one Santana record. Um... And I had heard, you know, other records, but I only had one. So I didn't really know that much about him, uh, which I'm glad of, um, because that wasn't an influence in, in our relationship from, from my side. Um, but, you know, we met one time, I was playing with Lenny Kravitz, and we were on, on tour in Europe, and we played the same festival. There were two bands, uh, Carlos's band played, so Santana played, and then, then Lenny closed. And so I met him very briefly then, just... Hi, I'm, I'm Cindy. Nice to meet you. Carlos, nice to meet you. That was it. What's that term? Meet cute? Is it meet cute? That feels like a meet cute. Between two incredible musicians. 
neither of which were necessarily looking for love. They were just, you know, playing. So that wasn't it. It wasn't it at all. Her talent and his talent were made for each other, as it turned out. And his way of thinking about music was made for her way. One of the things that I love about about Carlos's music is that, just as you said, you know, it's not only accepted in many different um, areas of life, but it's appropriate. And it's appropriate because it hits the core of the human spirit. You know, all of his rhythms are based off of African rhythms. And he'll say that, you know, people say, well, you're, you're playing Latin rhythms. You're playing Cuban rhythms. He says, no, (laughs) I'm playing African rhythms and Africa is the mother continent. And so these rhythms, that's the core that, that to me reaches and is in alignment with the pulse of the cosmos, the pulse of the universe. And so when you're in touch with that, you're touching everybody's core and he's completely in, in touch with that. He's completely aware of it and he does it purposefully, you know? So the music ends up having this incredible propulsion, you know, that really not only drives the music, but you feel it in here, you feel it in here, you know, you feel it not only in here, but it's, it's here, it's in the gut, yeah. it's in this brain, you know? And, and so when you can reach that guttural sense, that primal core, of all people, then you've really put your finger on the pulse of of what creation is made out of. Yeah, it's a. It's and he's done that, you know, which is, in, you know, I've, I find it to be really incredible. And the, like I said, I wasn't that familiar with his music initially, but the more I started listening to it, and the more I started checking it out and talking to him and finding out why he does what he does and where he got these rhythms from and where he got that from. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is hip, you know? So put yourself in Cindy Blackman's shoes. You're a drummer, confident, capable, amazing, but you're still stepping into a band that has had several shoes to fill behind the kit. 40 years or so worth of drummers. Some of the best who've ever done it. And Michael Shreve wrote and played the drum parts on Abraxas masterfully. Last episode, we talked about Michael Shreve's uh, method of weaving into the rest of the percussion section while also learning and staying out of the way when necessary. Cindy wanted to approach this work with respect for her predecessors and the entire classic lineup's percussion section when it came to the tracks on Abraxas. And that's a lot when you've got Mike Shreve, Michael Carabello, and Chapito Arias doing the dang thing. I like that he allows uh, himself to be a seamless uh, member, you know, of of that um, rhythm section, that percussion percussion section, you know, because it allows the music to flow, you know, um, there's a very strong rhythm in, and, 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 and momentum in what Chapito was doing and, you know, what Armando was doing, you know, there's, that's really strong, you know, so sometimes you just, you need to join that. Sometimes you need to get out of the way of that. Sometimes you need to just, you know, provide, um, a bed so that uh, 
the danceability of it is felt by everybody, you know, and that's important too. You know, that's, that's one of the things that, that, that I, I, I got out of playing with, with Lenny Kravitz. There's a bed that you got to make to make uh, the, the person in the front row and the person in the hundred thousandth row feel the pulse of the music and dance, you know? So those rhythms are so complex that, that, you know, um, Chapito and, and Armando are playing that sometimes uh, a little soft bed, you know, a seamless bed so that, again, you feel the danceability. So that's there because it's danceable. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's already there in the music, but it's so complex that sometimes people don't get that if they're not well-versed in, in that, um, that genre or that sound or that, you know, that flow, you know, so it's nice to, to provide that. So I, I think he did that really, really beautifully. You know, um, he added uh, a nice propulsion to what they were doing, a nice sound, a nice bed. His instruments sounded good. I guess you could say they sounded good. That might be the understatement of the season and a wonderful place to leave us. This season of the Opus has been my first and it has been a pleasure. Like a lot of you, I presume, I I mostly come across the songs of Abraxas individually. Radio stations, DMVs, wedding receptions. The whole album, you know, I have a pretty big record collection. I listen to a lot of albums. This has been a great excuse to dive into this Afro-Caribbean rock and roll touchstone that draws from all over the world. And it's been a delight and a welcome distraction from a life that I've lived inside the same four walls. Why was this the perfect choice to kick off this series? Why is Abraxas still worth exploring? People tell me to this day when they were either in Vietnam or Timbuktu or some Himalayas cave up in the, uh, the Andes and, you know, and you find the album there. You will find Abraxas everywhere because the songs have that imprint. It's spiritual and highly, 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 highly sensual. Spiritual and highly, highly, highly sensual. I hope that the rest of your winter follows that path. Like so many artists have followed in Santana's. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins. And I'll see you next season on The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska Podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the Boss Tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. 
There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network, 